episode 196. Barry, we are getting close to that magical 200th episode, but here we are, episode 196. You're still you're still on vacation? Good Lord in heaven. Barry, how you doing? How long have I been on vacation now, Jeff? Seemingly forever. Long. I think it's since February, at least. Yeah, I think you're right, but I'm doing great. It's, uh, you know what, go on vacation for three weeks and uh, watch your entire life change. So I don't want to go back to work. I don't want to go back home. I want to stay on the beach, Jeff. There you go. So on this episode, we will be uh, not only, as usual, talking about this date in history uh, in CWF, special date because it's the July 4th edition of this day in CWF history. We're going to be joined once again by old friend Ron Fuller. Ron Fuller and Barry reminiscing, oh, waxing poetic on the old WFIA days in Knoxville. Ron will be telling us stories about standing yay head and foot over a uh, four foot eleven Tom Burke, or is it maybe five one Tom Burke? Anyway, we'll be getting to that story. Along with that, our match of the week. We're going to July twenty fifth, nineteen seventy four. Barry, I believe you point out uh, during the uh, the talk about the match. This may be the earliest Bob Backlund match out there in the viewing a, a world. It's Bob Roop and Bob Backlund taking on Giant Baba and Jumbo Saruta. So you know that means Barry's going to be excited about that. Besides all that. Oh, Barry, this one, are you ready for a little controversy on the Breaking k with Bowden and Barry uh, page? Heck yeah. Top 10 NBA players of oh. all time. Ben Simmons isn't on that list, is he? Uh, ben Simmons is not. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, Fucking if, Ben and Simmons. If he, was, <laughs> if he was on the list, he'd be missing a free throw. I'm just going to so, say that. I'll so. say this, and this we'll break kayfabe a little bit right here. With it's this. been a couple of weeks since Ben uh, blew the uh, the playoff series for the Sixers. I was going to say so. Uh, so yeah, it has been. And when we're when this episode airs, there is a great chance Ben has already packed his bags and is going to be somewhere else. But the talk all throughout the city of Philadelphia the day after the Sixers were eliminated was that Ben Simmons is basically done in Philly. And Doc Rivers, while not done, there's a lot of people that are really down on him for sticking with Simmons during crucial moments when he basically has choked the entire series. So, yeah, but that that list, Jeff, you you sent me the list. That's a, there's some controversial names on there. We love a good controversy. I'm just going to say this right now, Barry. Is Ben Simmons of the 76ers Philadelphia's version of Frank Nilakina with the Knicks? Uh, Except. Tom Thibodeau benched Frank Nilakina. Doc Rivers stuck by God by Ben Simmons and kept playing him. And there's the issue right there is that uh, he did. And that's a, you know, this goes back, look, in any, I'll go back to the Knicks in 1994 when, when Riley stuck with Stark. Starks had had a shitty couple of games and Riley stuck with them and the Knicks wound up losing game seven by seven points. And it's still, I get chills. Like it still breaks my heart. But, you know, he got them there. John Starks had a huge hand in getting them there, and he was a very streaky shooter. Ben Simmons, though, essentially, this entire series has been just a shit show. And I think Doc Rivers has been a stellar coach. He's not perfect, but no coach really is. But last night, in my opinion, that was a huge last night. Sorry, two weeks ago. That's what you meant to say. That's what I meant to say. That was a huge error on his part. Yeah. So anyway, so what do you say we get going with episode 196, Bear. I think we do it. Now, Barry, we would be remiss if we did not uh, ask the stud about those old, oh, Barry, I know you remember them, those old WFIA days. 
Barry, you and Ron, 1978, was it in Knoxville? 1978, Jeff, and that was my first ever WFIA convention. And it was a big deal because, you know, now you've got fan fest for every, whether it's sports or uh, horror movies. There's every single fan fest known to man. But back in those days, we didn't have that. And the WFIA convention was a great way to not only meet wrestlers where you could actually have a conversation with them and, and be able to take photos and autographs outside of the wrestling arena. But you also got to hang out with groups of fans who had the same passion that you did. So I was 14 at the time. My parents actually, uh, drove up from, we went from Miami beach all the way up to Knoxville. I believe we drove the professor with this Peter Letterberg. And it was the four of us in a car and, uh, it was such a great experience and it's, you know, even now it's 43 years later, but it's almost like I didn't forget what happened. It was such an exciting time. I've got a bunch of photos, but the first thing I want to ask Ron, because something made a huge impression on me was the, uh, the hotel that we were staying in. I believe it was the Andrew Johnson hotel. Yes. That's and correct. I got to tell you, wow. What a, what an asshole! The, <laughs> yeah. What, what a massive. So, and, and I'm not. I'm going to back this up, Ron. I'm not just because again, I'm 14. I was probably like sleeping in my own filth at that stage. I didn't care. For me to know, when you walked into the hotel room and you turned on the lights, dozens of cockroaches would go scurrying. <laughs> so we did this. Barry's used to that in his own house, but not exactly. at a hotel, for God's sake. So. My mother immediately said, uh, we're not staying here. And I begged. I'm like, Mom, the convention. She goes, it, don't even, we're not staying here. Certainly, I understand in hindsight. So I believe there was a Hyatt. Oh, right, yeah. Right down the street. It had a glass elevator, which I remember. Beautiful and, Hyatt. You, yeah, exactly. That was a beautiful was, facility, right? Oh, it was fantastic. So we actually switched from the Andrew Johnson to the Hyatt. But another thing that caught my eye when we checked in, and this also caught the eye of my parents, there was a sign behind the front desk, no alcohol, no drugs, no prostitutes. I hate when they have those kind of rules. Yeah, and I don't think I'd ever seen a sign like that either. So immediately, you know, I, don't, I think my parents were like, all right, this, this isn't going to work out. And then the next day, we got to look at the pool. Well, somebody had forgot to tell them that, you know, hey, it's summertime. People might be using the pool. The pool was essentially a garbage dump. That's all. You had this giant pool with this brown, murky water and a ton of garbage all the way throughout. So I got to say the hotel itself was a disappointment. The Hyatt, certainly not. But the experience of being at a convention and then being able to interact, I, Ron, I interacted with you and your brother, Jimmy Golden, Phil Hickerson, Dennis Condry, Ron Wright, Roop was there, Ron Slinker, all these guys were there, and uh, it was so much fun. It was just, you know, it was one of these experiences that I, to this day I've never forgotten, and I, I went. I went to uh, at least two more fan fests, and then I, I discovered girls, and I stopped going. Go figure, right? <laughs> Oh, jeez, oh, man. Those women will do it to you. Absolutely. You know, that's yeah. a shame. 
yeah. Well, let's go back. Let's start with the Andrew Johnson Hotel, man. For people out there that they can't picture it, Knoxville downtown in those days was kind of a small, not a big metropolis. And uh, the Andrew Johnson Hotel was about as old as Andrew Johnson would have been, you know, probably uh, 200 years old there. 150 and uh it was an old historic building but uh i'd never been in there uh until they had the convention so i was a little uh uh I, it was a little different than what i expected as well you know and it wasn't wasn't big time <laughs> but the hyatt was a great place and uh you know we used to have some great parties in, in the hyatt i've told a couple of studcast uh, uh, stories about the hyatt hotel that was a great place to go and party, man. And a, a beautiful building. One of those glass elevators take you all the way to the top. Big lobby. You could see the, you stand uh, 15 stories up and look down into the lobby. And and you were right across the street from the Coliseum, correct? It, I mean, it was right there, correct? Right there. I mean, you it's, uh, 150 feet from the Coliseum. And, uh, you know, Barry, since we're talking about, uh, I think this is 1978, I believe this was, uh, well, the y'all and everybody in the convention came to the uh, event, and uh, it was a tremendous card. In fact, I, I looked the card up just a few minutes ago, just to to remind me who was on that card in the Coliseum that Friday night. The main event was me and Harley Race for a world championship match and a world championship match. Uh, it was a southeastern championship match. With the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. against Ronnie Garvin, a Southeastern Tag Championship match, Condry and Hickerson, which was a great team. A lot oh, yeah. of people may not know that combination, but they were an absolutely phenomenal team, uh, managed by Ron Wright. There was a Southern Brass Nucks Championship match on that card. Malenko, the great Malenko, against Bearcat Brown, Bob Roop against Tony Charles. Rip Smith against Don Carson, and Ron Wright against uh, Dick Steinborn. So you got a lot of Florida connections there, you know, quite a few recognizable Florida guys. Yeah, So let, and let me ask you about that too. So being that you were such a huge part of CWF for years, it did seem like a lot of guys would go from Florida up to work with you, up to Knoxville. So how did that work? Would they... Would they make the call to you personally? Would Eddie call you and say, hey, you know, Tony Charles has been here for two years. He's looking for a home. How did all that work out? Most of the time you got the call from the wrestler himself. Then Eddie would have probably gone to, let's just say, uh, Tony Charles as an example. And if he had been there for two years, Eddie probably said, you know, Tony, uh, you've done a great job here, but it's uh, we need to move you. And uh, he would give him a notice, but it would be a, a for substantial notice. It might be a four week, a month notice. And they would give Tony a chance to to call around and find himself a spot. But uh, yeah, all of these guys, the ones that I mentioned out of there that, that spent a lot of time in Florida, Garvin spent a lot of time there. Yeah. Stomford spent a lot of time there. A lot of these dudes that I just mentioned, the Roop was there a lot. Uh, Carson was down there and they were back and forth. When they left there, they wanted to come to the mountains. We were having fun, and and we were also doing business. In fact, on this card, this card was the 10th card out of the last 25 in the Coliseum that was over 6,000 people. Wow. So, Ron, let me ask you. The first thing I thought of was when an organization like the WFIA, when they reach out to you and say, hey, we want to have a convention, 
in your home in the territory that you're uh, you're running at this point. Who starts facilitating the plans? Is it the people that are the hierarchy of the WFIA? What is your role uh, in helping facilitate all that? Actually, I just flip it right over to my man Les Thatcher. I say, Les, I got a call from the WFIA, and they want to come on the, this particular date because of the card, and uh, take care of it. And uh, wow, Les was so great at that. I mean, he just uh, he made everybody feel comfortable, especially the people running that convention, and uh, everything just went smoothly, man. Uh, and we cooperated. I don't know if all places did it when they came to town if they brought so many wrestlers, but uh, on that particular convention. We must have had probably uh, at least 12 guys, maybe a couple of the convention events. So we, we really supported it. And, and we received, you know, they gave a lot of uh, awards out to a lot of different wrestlers. It was in Southeastern at that time. It's funny and, uh, how it coincided with that, huh? I just, yeah, uh, it's amazing, right? It's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, by every, heck of a coincidence. All of a sudden, everybody's getting rewards. But it, it was it was good. I remember uh, I really enjoyed it. The time I spent at the convention and uh, and uh, less obviously spent a lot of time with whoever was running those things back in those days. So, Barry, yeah. do you know how how far out would uh, the WFIA guys start making the uh, sending the mail to uh, to Ron or to Les and say, hey, look, we're uh, we're looking to have our convention. Like, would it be like two months out? Uh, no, I think it, I think it was close to a year because I I'm trying to remember if they announced it at the prior convention. So they would announce it almost a year out, but I I don't know if it was fully, but it was definitely several months because when we found out cuz I went the next year was in Memphis and then it was in Atlanta after that. And I know that the second we received information about the upcoming event you know, we would buy our tickets, we would start to book the hotel, you know, whatever it took to get up there. But Ron just said something and Ron was absolutely, Jeff, Ron was a hundred percent correct. Check. And in that whenever they went to a town or a promotion that all the awards went to the people working in the promotion. So, you know, like in this case, I think Ron actually won the WFIA wrestler of the year award the tag team went to Hickerson and Condry, and then next year they go to Memphis. Then it's Jerry Lawler, and I forget who won the tag team. And then the year after, they're in Georgia. Tommy Rich is winning it. So uh, they always tried to work with the promotion. And look, it, as wrestling fans, it was so kayfabe back in those days. We were grateful that anybody was giving us the time of the day. You know, it was like that was that was a huge thing. But I got to tell you. Out of the three conventions I went to, I think Knoxville was probably the most hospitable. And when I say that, it was the point that Ron made so many guys available to us at the convention that, you know, it was just like my head was spinning. Like, you know, holy cow, I'm going to go over there. I'm going to go meet, you know, uh, Hickerson and Condry. And and over here is, you know, and it just it was just great. But Les Thatcher was there. And I think Les, if I'm correct was kind of doing the emceeing that day as well, Ron. Yeah, yeah, he was right. He was highly involved. I know he was there, yeah. and there was another another very short guy that uh, that <laughs> was running things. Uh, Tom Burke. When he that gave was... me the award, <laughs> everybody in the place, because he must have been three feet shorter than me, <laughs> it seemed like. 
And everybody in the entire place just cracked up when I got up and stood next to him to take the award. I, I, I couldn't help but laugh myself, you know. <laughs> and and not to pick on poor Tom, but Tom Tom is he's challenged when it comes to height. So (laughs) Tom, Tom is not a tall guy. Ron, obviously very tall, but here's the beauty. I have a photo of you two as he's giving you the award. It's in black and white and I've got to go find it. I took a bunch of photos at that awards banquet so we can actually put that in our Facebook group. And Ron, obviously I'll text you the photo as well. Oh, great. Great. I'd love to have it. Uh, You know, I, I know I was, I know I was laughing quite a bit during it because he was so short and everybody in the place was like, uh, they were they were into it. It was, yeah. it was pretty funny. One of the other things that I think really stood out for me, obviously the, the, how everybody was friendly, were some of the other towns we went to. Because, the, uh, Jeff, part of the beauty of the convention is you didn't just go to the Knoxville show. You know, if you were in town for a few days, which most people were, you were hitting the other spot shows that were taking place. So we went to a show in, I believe it was Taswell or Tazewell, Kentucky. Yeah, Taswell. Yeah. So you're, you know, you're taking a uh, a kid out of Miami Beach and you're putting him in in Taswell. Uh, <laughs> culture shock for you there, Bear. Yeah, a little bit of a shock, just a little, a little different. But even the car ride, because if I'm correct, Taswell was a coal mining town. Oh, yeah. Most of, most of those eastern Kentucky cities were all coal mining towns, every one of them. I was hoping you were going to say you went to Harlan. I, I mean, we did go to Harlan, too. I think we went to Harlan also. Harlan, the Harlan I'll guarantee. And it was a big old round high school gym. It was one of That's the right. biggest gymnasiums in the state of Kentucky. We probably had 3,000 plus in that little gym in Harlan. And when you went into the uh, the city limits of Harlan, Kentucky, they had a sign out that said population 3,000. And we had more than 3,000 in the high school gym every other Saturday night in Harlan, Kentucky. One of the greatest small wrestling cities I've ever seen. And that, that was one thing, too. The fans were extremely passionate. But, you know, a part of it, too, was in, in Ron, you, you wrestled in Miami Beach many times, hundreds oh, yeah. of times, probably. Jeff, you've been to Miami Beach to see wrestling. So we went from guys wearing shorts and white loafers and a nice suntan to guys that literally looked like they could kill you at any moment with some of these coal miners. So it was a big culture shock, but it was a lot of fun. And I remember, and it was either Taswell or Harlan, it was one of the two. The stomper was on top and he was defending his title that night. And it was great because you're seeing him in a place that it's smaller. It's more intimate. Very exciting. Just a really exciting time. I got a question for you, Ron. Yeah. So I I didn't interrupt you. Sorry. When you're having the ceremonies, okay, and, and the different awards are going out and based on the fact that, you know, we know how ingrained kayfabe was back in those days. So. Barry mentioned that they gave the tag team award to uh, Hickerson and Condry. Here you are winning the wrestler of the year. How do you separate the fact that, uh, you know, these are guys that, you know, I don't know if you were feuding directly with them or not, but they're on one side of the locker room and you're, uh, you're in another locker room. So how does that work when you're doing an award ceremony? Well, I remember that uh, all the baby faces and there was a yep. big stage in that, in that facility right. and all the baby faces sat on one side of the main commentator uh, who was less and, uh, and the other gentleman, Tom, or whatever his name was, the shorter gentleman. And uh, the heels were separated from the baby faces on the stage. 
And obviously, we didn't work any angles, which might have been a good idea, you know, but they wouldn't. A lot of the people that came to those conventions weren't from that area, obviously. They're from other parts of the country. So, you know, uh, Barry being down from the Miami area had seen a lot of these guys over the years uh, because, like you said, they came up to Knoxville and they worked there. And a lot of times they'd stay there for me a year and they'd go back to Florida. A lot of them would. Yeah, and that, that, that was a big key, too. And that, I, that's my assumption on why the promotions wanted to work, because you did have a couple hundred people coming from all over the world. I mean, there were people coming from Japan in the 70s to go to these events. So it was a, it was a really big deal. And then I know, I want to say it was the mid-80s when this thing kind of, I think there were some internal issues between presidents and vice presidents. I don't know, some such nonsense. You know, but they this thing wound up kind of imploding and uh, our old friend P- Peter Letterberg tried to restart it and I think was successful for a year or two. But fundamentally, it became difficult. And I guess his territory started to die out in the 80s. That was difficult as well. But such a great memory, Ron. And I, I am going to dedicate some time tomorrow and dig out these photos and I'm going to send all these to you. And just, yeah, such a great memory and hard to believe that, you know, 43 years ago. Oh yeah, it's 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 uh, it's freaky. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> I mean, when you talk about those kind of numbers, they're like, oh, that ain't possible. You know, right. it's not that couldn't have been. You know, another another young guy about about your age, probably uh, Barry, at that point was out there at that uh, same convention was uh, Jim Cornette. Absolutely, taking so. pictures and this yep. uh, big, you know, he just he's just a huge fan, just like uh, everybody else in that place and. Uh, you know, it's crazy uh, what what kind of uh, what kind of what happens in wrestling that, uh, you know, you got a guy like Cornette that's a big fan and just taking the photos and he ends up being one of the one of the stars. And here yeah. it is even crazier, Ron, 43 years later, and we all have a podcast on the Arcadian Vanguard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that is kind of freaky. Isn't yeah, it, it is. All talking uh, through the same company. And uh, wow. Uh, 43 years. It's been a long, long time, but, uh, you know, we all still look pretty good. I think though, you know, you do, you do. I don't know about <laughs> me and Jeff, but yeah, you do <laughs> hey, speak, speak for yourself. Mister. All so right. let, All right. One last question. So since you mentioned Cornette was at the Knoxville convention, I'm assuming that this individual would have been at the next one in Memphis, but was Eddie Gilbert in Knoxville? Yes, he was. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he probably was. Was yeah. that was yeah. his first. So Cornette and Eddie, it was their first conventions as well. And Eddie was there, and uh, Eddie at that stage wasn't even a wrestler. Eddie was oh, no. the son he's of a wrestler. He's just a kid. He's yeah. just a big kid. <laughs> yeah, I want to say if I was, he was probably sixteen years old. I mean, he was. He was just a kid. I think Cornette was either sixteen or seventeen. So yeah, but Eddie was there. Eddie was there the next year because it was Memphis, and I don't think he made Atlanta the year after, but I don't remember. So, Mary, it's time for our match of the week. We're going to July 25th, 1974. This is an oldie goldie, Barry. As friend of the show, Bob Roop teams up with Bob Backlund, a couple CWF guys, taking on Giant Baba Jumbo Saruta. First of all, tell me what you thought of this match, Bear. Yeah, so I like this match. This is, this is not a game changer by any stretch, but this is a good look. So it, let's look at everybody individually. This is a fairly decent Giant Baba match. And, you know, I think a lot of people remember Baba 
from I guess the mid eighties on and, and certainly up until uh when was his last matches, maybe early nineties. And then they were sporadic, but you know, Baba wasn't doing a whole lot at that stage. It was basically the giant chop, nothing else was happening. But here Baba actually is decent. He's you know, he's good. Sharuda is a young guy here. I think he'd only been in the business maybe two to three years max. He looks good. Bob Roop is probably uh you know, the veteran, except for Baba, he would be the veteran. He'd been around since 69, so he's got five years. And Backlund, I think, has maybe got a year to a year and a half. Everybody looks really good here. Roop is interesting to see here because Roop is working a heel. And Roop had never worked as a heel before. And he does a stellar job. He's about six months, five months away from his first heel push, which was a main event heel push in the state of Florida, you know, when he joined Gary Hart's army and turned on Cowboy Bill Watts. And he just looks really good here. But this is really a showcase, I think, for Backlund and for Roop in a lot of ways. Roop does the shoulder breaker. That was such a great maneuver. You know, I go back and there's all these finishers. And, and that's primarily what it was, too. There's all these finishers that are are lost to this generation and even the generation prior to us. And the shoulder breaker was one of them, but it was perfect. He's, he gets him up, delivers the shoulder breaker, doesn't get the win with the shoulder breaker, where in Florida, he always got the win. He does a job in the first fall, which I thought was kind of odd. But did you notice one thing that I really, really saw with this? Backlund and Sharuda, I don't know if they were completely working, but it, it seemed a little stiff. And Backlund seemed like he was getting really irritated by it. Sharuda, as usual, poker face. Doesn't show his emotion, does his job, you know, and, and can be stiff. But there was a couple of instances here where Backlund looked like he was really getting ticked off. And then Backlund gets Sharuda up in a double underhook suplex and drops Sharuda right on his head, Jeff. Did you see that? I did. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know about that one. So I, I'd be curious to see, but I, I like this match. This has got to be the oldest Backlund match that's out there also. I don't think I've ever seen an older Backlund match. Uh, and everybody looks good. So this is good. Again, this is not a game changer, but if you want to see something solid that literally is, what, 47 years old at this point, this would probably be the match for you. Going to disagree with you a little bit. Oh, oh yes. Uh, doesn't yeah. happen often here on the old Breaking Cape Fable about in a Berry podcast, but so I'm going to give you the good and the bad from this match, in my humble opinion. I thought Backlund, and I'm going to give him uh, his due. He was probably only in the pro wrestling business for what, like a year or something like that at this yeah, point. I think that's it. Uh, he looked pretty awkward, but. If you look at Backlund when he was the world champion, he had times when he looked kind of awkward. So maybe that's just the style that he worked. But at seeing him in the white trunks with the white boots also was was very uh, just, I don't know, it just looked kind of very strange to me. So I thought he was not impressive. Now, let's flip the uh, switch on that. I'm going to tell you who really impressed me in this match. And I don't think in 190 plus episodes I've ever said these words. Holy cow, giant Baba. He fucking <laughs> right? he hit a drop kick in this match. I've never seen Baba throw a drop kick. He came off the top rope, Barry. I was like, when he started climbing, I was like, what the fuck is this? Holy shit, he came off the fucking giant Baba. And if you remember, 1974, this would have been either the year or very close to the time when Baba had his win over Jack Briscoe. Am I correct? 
You are. I think it was early 75, so I think he's just a few months yeah. away from winning that title. Yeah. So this is still prime Giant Baba. This is an old guy that worked the comedy matches with Russia Kimura, and they would do the chop, and then Kimura would make fun of him. And, so, you know, and they had a whole shtick that they did for like three years. But this is still in his prime Giant Baba. He doesn't look as sort of skeletal. He doesn't have that sort of T-Rex, you know, giant torso with sort of arms that look like they kind of dangle. I mean, it's an awkward, you know, look, let's be honest. But <laughs> yeah, a, a guy that, that really looks very, very solid in this match, and I don't know that I've ever seen Giant Baba. And and I've seen, uh, with the exception of the match that we reviewed many, many months ago, yeah. where he faced off with um, Fritz von Erich, I don't know that I've ever seen Giant Baba look better than this, Bear. Yeah, there's a, so there's a match that's out there, and I didn't see it, and it kept prompting me to watch it next as I was watching this match, and it's Baba versus Gene Kaniski. And I could see that. Uh, we talked about Gene Kaniski last week. I, that's a match I could see, but you're right about Baba. And the funny thing is, you know, I saw Baba live, and I think it was 74 he was in Florida. Actually, it been right not too far off of this. He came in during the whole dusty babyface turn thing, and he was tag team partners with Pac Song. Only lasted a week or two. But I don't remember anything about him at that stage. But what I knew of Baba was, you know, that the whole, all the stuff in the 80s and going into the 90s when we were trading tapes and doing all that shit. And it, Baba was, he was a comedy guy. He moved really slow, had the worst chop. And there was, you remember the guy that did that, the wrestling newsletter, Pro Wrestling Sushi? Jeff Mullins. Yes, yes, absolutely. So he described Baba as a corpse with skin uh, <laughs> pulled over, which you know, which it really was. That's really what he was. He's really decent in this match. There's, I, I can't find fault for a guy as big as he is. He's working. So yeah. Now Backlund. That's interesting that you find Backlund was awkward in this match. I'll give you that. But did you get the feeling? Either he's a really great worker, or did you get the feeling like he was really frustrated with Sharif? No, I, I think that's a good way of putting it because I don't think, to be honest with you, he'd been in the business long enough to be that good a worker. Right. That's what I'm thinking. I don't think he's right. Exactly. Because there was a look and he was kind of screaming at the referee. The referee, too, Jeff. Yes. Who was that guy? I think, and I don't know this for sure, when Baba came over to the U.S. in the 1960s, he had a couple of handlers. One was a guy named Fred Atkins, and the other was, fuck, what was the other guy's name? He had two handlers. It was a Canadian guy, and I totally am drawing a blank on his name. Tiger Tasker, Fred Tasker, and the other guy was, I'm thinking it was one of those two guys. I think, and I think what happened was Baba, because Baba being arguably the most ethical of all wrestling promoters, they had taken care of him when he was a young boy. And I think he was staying loyal and actually giving these guys referee jobs. Fuck, it'll come to me when we're not doing this segment, Jeff. Then I'll figure out of and I'll course, just blurt actually. it out. Yeah. So, as you will, yeah, you'll be talking about, uh, you know, something uh, uh, related to Jardians like we did last week. And you'll oh, suddenly blurt out, oh, I know the guy's name. I know the guy's name. We so, got some good feedback on that one, Jeff. That's for sure. <laughs> I can only imagine. So, anyway. Yeah. Now, Barry, it is time for us to go to our next segment. Oh, it's this date in CWF history. But, Barry, because of the holiday, we're going to do a little something. We're going to talk about this date in July 4th, CWF history. What you got? Yeah, so uh, I like the fact that you reached out and you thought about that. And CWF was known for doing big cards on a July the 4th holiday. 
which is interesting to me because when you think of July the 4th, you generally think of, I'm going to go to the beach. It'll be a swimming pool. Maybe we'll do a barbecue. Let's go sit in an arena and watch professional wrestling. But to the credit, look, the, the, some of these cards drew like extremely well. And there was that big card that took place. And I want to say it was 1980 in Hollywood. Jeff, were you there for that card? I was not, unfortunately. Okay, because I know that, you know, I, I want to say maybe a lot of the South Florida guys were there, like the Bob McKeons and Howard Baums, and a lot of people were there. But that was a main event steel cage match, 1980 in Hollywood, Florida. Mr. Florida defeating the Super Destroyer. It, the card to me was interesting. You had the Florida title, Don Morocco defending against Stephen Little Bear. You familiar with Stephen Little Bear? I believe you've told me some stories about things that may have derailed his push in CWS. Now, I'll give you credit for the Little Bear part. That was Danny Little Bear. Oh, okay. Sorry. So you're you're on the right track with that. Stephen Little Bear was, I, I think it was Steve Kovacs. It was one of the Steves, and uh, he was not an American Indian. He was a guy who had a really good suntan, and they made him an Indian. And yeah, it, which, you know, that, that was the they logic. They never would do that kind ago. of thing in pro wrestling. Come on. No. You know, you, they wouldn't do it now. I guess they probably still would do it. But he had worked for Leroy McGurk or Bill Watts out in uh, Mid-South. And they brought him in. And he was a guy. He had to be in his 40s at this point. This was like a last run. But this was, I think, a one-shot deal. There was nothing to write home about. Morocco beats him. But the same night, because of the holiday, they did a U.S. tag team $50,000 Challenge Cup tournament. So interesting that they put on $50,000 as the monetary amount with that one. But this was a big deal. You had Dory Funk Jr. and Terry Funk defeating Mike Graham and Jimmy Garvin. Dick Slater and Mr. Saito defeating Steve Kern and Manny Fernandez. No idea why Kern and Graham were actually broken up. Dusty Rhodes and Bugsy McGraw defeating Ivan Koloff and Nikolai Volkov. Terry Funk and Dory Funk Jr. defeating Bobo Brazil and Bubba Douglas. And then to win the tournament, Dusty Rhodes and Bugsy McGraw beat the Funk Brothers. And I'll tell you what, Dusty and I can't believe Dusty would put himself over like that. No, no, Dusty would never do that. But it made sense, and I guess you know, in a lot of ways. Obviously, it's July the fourth. Bugsy was a guy who had turned babyface earlier in the year, and uh, he was an all-American type. And I'll tell you what's interesting about this to me, Jeff, more than anything. Did you ever read Bugsy McGraw's book? Yes, I did. It was excellent. It was excellent, and I I got an advanced copy, and I remember. One of our fan fests, and I, it wasn't the last one. It, maybe it was the one prior to that. And I was sitting around the lobby, and it was midnight. And I had read the book, and I was talking about I was talking about the book with some people in the in the lobby. I don't remember who was there. And the one thing about that book that really stuck out was the relationship between Dusty and Bugsy. Do you know specifically what I'm talking about? Uh, let's just say it was complicated. <laughs> it was, it, <laughs> that's like your Facebook status, right? When it says exactly. like, it's complicated. complicated. Well, it was complicated and it was weird. So, you know, I've been a fan for this is my 50th year. I'm re- literally coming up on my 50th year. And there are times when I still have to go, you know, don't be a mark. Like, you know, like, like, come on now. And for some reason, I always thought Dusty and Bugsy were the best of friends. And of course, 
logic should have told me, look, it's a business. You know, that doesn't make them the best of friends. But I really thought that there's a chapter in the book where Bugsy feels like he's been held back by Dusty and Dusty has disrespected him. And they're out in a parking lot of a bar. And it may have even been Graham's Lounge. And Bugsy slaps Dusty across the face and basically just tells him. And Dusty, I guess, backs down from Bugsy. This is strictly Bugsy's account. You know, no idea. But I remember being so like, holy shit, I thought these two were the best of friends. And Bugsy obviously felt that Dusty was a guy that uh, didn't always have his back during his career. But this night they did. They worked together. Here's a match which I thought was interesting. This was the curtain jerker of a stellar card. Jeff Ports defeats Scott McGee. Now that, that is interesting. That is, because uh, as Jeff will tell you in a second, Jeff, why is this interesting? Ah, you got your old uh, father-son relationship or perhaps you do. there. Yeah, and when I asked Scott about it, too, I asked him about guys. That, that was another relationship that was complicated, by the it way. It was very complicated between the two, and I was, uh, and I remember, you know, and I forget how I asked Scott this question, but maybe during an interview or something, and uh, I said, so your father had a hand in training you, and he was like, no, my father beat the shit out of me, and did everything to discourage me from becoming a professional wrestler. And I think guys like Ric Flair and the Malenkos actually spent a lot of time with Scott, but I thought that was interesting. So I can only imagine in the ring together, Jeff Ports had to have been a little stiff with Scott, but uh, I just, yeah, interesting. But moving on, there was another big event taking place at the Sunrise Musical Theater. They called it the Firecracker Special. And I believe, Jeff, I believe you might have been at that one. Were you at that one in 84? Uh, give me the card. Card is a lights out lumberjack match with sticks. I'm guessing kendo sticks. Oh, Kevin, I thought you were going to say sticks. Uh, Dennis DeYoung, Tommy Shaw. Had it been. They, they, were, oh, they were there. <laughs> yeah. They were there before the card. Yeah. Anyway, go they on. were there before the card. Sold out concert that turned into a wrestling show. <laughs> exactly. Republican facing Kevin Sullivan. But your Florida title underneath. Billy Jack Haynes versus superstar Billy Graham, uh, which is an interesting matchup. So I was not there for that one, but I want to say you might have been there because I think we actually talked about that card at one point. Moving on, we're going to go back a couple of years, 1982 in Orlando. And I only bring this up, Jeff, because you brought it up three weeks ago, and it seems like you were 100% correct, Jeff. Check. Texas Deathmatch and $5,000 goes to the winner. Barry Windham defeats Dory Funk Jr. Barry Windham subbing for David Von Erich. Uh, imagine that. Uh, imagine that. Another big card taking place, Miami Beach. I was there for this one, Jeff. 1979, no disqualification Florida title match. Dusty Rhodes capturing the Florida title. I believe this might have been his eighth reign, defeating King Curtis. But check out this match right underneath, and then we'll talk about one of these combatants. U.S. tag titles. And how is this for an, uh, a heel tag team? These were your U.S. tag team title champions, Don the Magnificent Morocco and Joe LaDuke. I mean, that's like a dream right yeah, there. Yeah, that's some, that's some good stuff, no question. Oh, they defeated Steve Kern and a young Buzz Sawyer. Let's talk about a young Buzz Sawyer. So this guy was different than the Buzz Sawyer that you would see a year later in Georgia. Oh, he- my. Oh my is right. So he was had a, he had some hair. He wasn't he was balding, he receding hairline, but he had a uh, kind of a mullet thing going. He had a full head of hair. He was young. 
He was friendly to fans. What? Yeah. You know, and this was the crazy thing. We saw Buzz Sawyer and I want to say Buzz started in the Memphis area just a few months earlier. Buzz being from St. Petersburg and then came back and got this kind of rookie push. You know, they weren't Eddie wasn't going to push him to the moon. But at the same time, you could see even at this stage, this kid had it. This kid was he was built. He was, you know, not a tall guy, but uh, he could work. He could really, really work. And I was a big fan of this version of Buzz Sawyer. He was friendly to fans. And I remember hearing stories within a year. He's bald. He's working in Georgia and he's he's peeing in red solo cups and throwing his urine on fans. And that always struck me because this <laughs> that's is something most baby faces don't do. Uh. No, it's probably not good for a baby face to do that. But this was this was the complete antithesis of the guy that we saw. Completely different. You know, this baby face was different. And this guy in Georgia was a fucking psycho. So uh, I was a big fan of Buzz Sawyer. 1978 U.S. tag titles, Mike Graham and Steve Kern. On the 4th of July, defeating Mr. Saito and Mr. Sato to regain the U.S. tag titles when Kern pinned Saito. However, the tag title did not change. As what? The, the decision was reversed, Jeff. I was getting ready to go, USA, USA, USA. Well, anyway. right? And that's what should have happened. And then we'll wrap up here. We will go to 1967 in Tampa. Buddy Fuller, the father of Ron and Robert Fuller, defeats the great Malenko on a third fall DQ in a Florida title match. Buddy Fuller, you know, what a, the Fullers, I see this all the time, and and somebody posted today, this is the question that comes up on, I think on every wrestling page at some point or another, what's the greatest wrestling family that's ever lived? For me, it's the Von Erichs. You know, that's generally what comes up. If you don't take a real deep look at the Fuller family, and all that encompasses the Fuller family between going back to like the 1930s up until Robert Fuller wrestling and Jimmy Golden still wrestling, I think occasionally you're missing out. You certainly the Von Erichs had there was some talent there. I'm not going to deny it. The Briscoe brothers, it's only two brothers, but they were great. The Funks, there were three Funks, but the Fullers, it's, you know, try to do the family tree. Somebody years ago had a chart of the Fuller family tree. And apparently that was incorrect. There's more that should be involved with it. So I'm going to say, I think the legacy of the Fuller Welch clan and professional wrestling, all that's involved between length of time, promoting wrestling, owning their own businesses, booking all of it. You got to give a lot of credit to these guys. Only one minor correction, Barry, when you said that you Please. read that, when you read that today, you meant to say, I read that a couple weeks ago. Kiaze, Fiaze. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, That's right. What, yeah, okay, thank you. So, Barry, I came across an article on our uh, our favorite website for this show, thetop10s.com. Barry, I know you are an NBA guy, correct, Amundo? That is correct. So the top 10 list that I saw, and it's funny they call it the top 10 because they give you like 25 choices here. Top 25, Barry, NBA players of all time. Again, all time. And quite frankly, I think this list is a little on the controversial side, so I thought it'd make a good uh, 
talking point. Are you ready to go, Mr. NBA guy? I think I, I Jeff, we can knock this out in five minutes, right? Uh, uh, no, we can't. A top, <laughs> okay, top 25 of uh, right. well, no, And yeah. once again, like some of the other ones we did from this, we're not going to do every single guy on this. I'm just going to throw right. some of the names out there. So, uh, quick question. So there is, there's a website called the top tens, the top tens.com. Wow. I never knew that. And with, with this, where list, the hell do you think I get half the content? That's great. Who knew? I think that's great. That's a good point. Where are you getting all this content? Do they tell you who came up with this list? I think it's just one of the writers for their website. It's not so, like any sort of, uh, it's not somebody uh, qualified. You know, it's it's not like a hundred thousand people were polled. Right. Or like Mike fucking Lupica or something from, you know, right. Like, uh, so it's not like a sports writer. Mike Lupica out from, good Lord. I got Seinfeld uh, on the brain. Yeah, George Costanza's favorite writer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. Yeah, sure. Start Starting off, number 25, Barry, is one of the top 25 players in the history of the National Basketball Association, Vince Carter. Oh, I don't see that. It's and so this will be interesting because there's going to be people who are going to disagree with us. I don't, and I don't see that. But I also wonder, what's the qualification? Are they looking at just stats? Are you looking at making a team better? Like, what is the so? What I'm looking at, look, maybe his stats say he's top 25 of all time. And Vince Carter, I think, had one of the longest careers of any NBA player ever. But at the same time. There's a lot of, I think, a lot of holes in that career for Vince Carter. I don't see him as a top 25 player. I could probably. Would you say Patrick Ewing is top 25? I'm extremely fucking biased. So, yes, I would say Patrick Ewing is top uh, I 25. I thought somehow you'd feel that way. Okay. Yes. Let me, uh, let me jump a couple spots here, Barry. Is Patrick Ewing, I mean, was he, is he, I don't want to, I don't want you to reveal if he's on the list, but. He's on the list. Yes. Okay. I'm not going to tell you where, but he is on the list. Okay. Because I figured this should really fire up some of our NBA people on our board. Sure. Uh, Isaiah Thomas, does he belong on the list? <sighs> that's and that's a tough one right there. So that's a border. What what numbers is he on a number or uh, he's on the list? I won't say what the number is. Okay, I, I I'll say it. Uh, top twenty five. Yeah, he probably does. He probably would make the top twenty five. Would he make top ten? In my opinion, absolutely not. But yeah. Bernard King. Oh, another one. And Bernard King is, I think he was one of your favorite players of all time, if I remember that conversation correctly, Jeff. Would that be right? That's correct. Bernard King was fantastic. Obviously, injuries really hampered that career. Had he not been injured, I, I, in my opinion, I think Bernard King absolutely should be top 25. I, I just don't see top 25. Again, there's a lot of holes there. The guy had the skill, that, and this is not about you know any of that. He had the skill. He certainly had stats at one point in his career. But there, it, there are there are guys that whose career had uh, you know whether it was injuries. Let's be honest. There were guys that had drug problems. Yep. Uh, Bernard King uh, had a limited window right. for a variety of reasons. During that window, he was absolutely a top twenty-five guy of all time. But and that, there you, you take, go. But no, no. But if it, if you're talking about a maybe a four or five-year window. Uh, versus other guys that are playing for 15 years. I mean, that's something that's fair to consider, you know? So I would say a four or five year window, he was for the entirety of his career because Barry, spoiler alert, not on the list. Uh, I just thought of him and I, I wanted to throw it out there to see whether or not you thought. I, I think over a four or five year career, 
or window of his career, he should have been on there. But if you take into uh, the account the entirety of his career, no. So, Jerry West. I, I think so. And it, now, what you're going to run into here is you're going to run into the old NBA versus a newer form of, of NBA. And Rules had, were different. Yes. And that that's a big thing. So, you know, Jerry and Jerry West is the fucking logo. You know, he's yes. the guy. So, I mean, he's like the fucking poster boy of the NBA for the last 40 years, 50 years. But again, it, it's sometimes it's really hard to go back and, and look at guys, your Oscar Robertsons and your Jerry. And obviously he deserves to be on the list, Oscar Robertson. But Jerry West does. It's just a different world. When, you know, when so many rules have changed, the three point deal, all this shit has sure. changed over the years. So, and, but I would say Jerry West does deserve to be on there. Yes. You know, and here's the argument that I always make for, for people that say, oh, well, you know, the guys nowadays are so much more talented than they were in the late sixties. You know, there's a difference and that's that, Sure. you know, in the late sixties, there weren't 32 fucking teams, yep. you know? Yeah, yeah, there were there were different you know rules and different things going on, but the league was what Think about it. If they contracted the NBA down to like say eight to ten teams, you know how many guys would not be fucking working right. or, or be going overseas to work in China or Israel or Germany uh, because you know they've they've expanded the league. So the guys that are like say eight through twelve on most NBA teams w would not have played. Now, would the elite guys in the league now, would a Kevin Durant be playing in the 60s? Fuck yeah, you know, uh, guys like that. But then you'd also have guys, and much like hockey, I think a lot of the bullshit that guys get away with now, I'm going to put it out there, they maybe wouldn't have got away with, uh, you know, 50 years ago because the <laughs> team would have self-policed. Yes, the NBA, the the league, and I'm talking about other players yeah. would have self-policed. Absolutely, they wouldn't have. I and here's the look. It's like any sport, and I think professional wrestling. You know, you we you talked about Dick Murdoch a few minutes ago. We 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 actually talked about him a lot on this episode. And Dick Murdoch was a guy. A lot of Dick in this episode. A lot. There's a yeah. Really, this is this is the heavy Dick episode. It, Dick Murdoch was a guy that was a professional wrestler because of the love of the business. And, and certainly it was a way to make, you know, he was making money, he was paying his bills, et cetera. But Dick Murdoch wasn't a guy that was getting super wealthy from professional wrestling. It was what he wanted to do and is what he knew. And, and when it comes to basketball, I think for a lot of the old timers, that's almost identical. I think, you know, a guy, an Oscar Robertson's a great example. Oscar Robertson loved basketball. Did he want to make money to support his family? Of course he did. That would be ridiculous to think otherwise. But he played basketball. Why? Because he fucking loved it. It was everything to him. And I don't know that you always see that these days. Well, and our next, uh, next guy I'm going to ask you about is a guy. Uh, here's a word you don't use often on the show. Uber. Uber talented. <laughs> Right. Over talented, but what is he best known for? We're talking about practice. We're talking about practice. Uh, <laughs> Alan Iverson, incredibly talented guy, but did Iverson want that success uh, on a personal and team level the way that somebody like Oscar Robertson did? I don't know, but I mean, I think it's fair debate because a lot of times we saw Alan Iverson having tremendous games, and then you have games. And I'm just going to say this, Allen Iverson is, by the way, not the only guy that you could ever say this about. You have guys, let's be honest, that kind of half-ass it through some games, you know? 
And then you have guys that are super, super talented guys that every single fucking game, man, they're going out there and playing like if they don't win the game, they're being put in front of a firing squad. Right. And so there are guys that you can say that about and guys that maybe you can't say that about. And I think that's uh, fair commentary, would you say, Bear? I think it's a, it's it's extremely fair. And Iverson's a great example because Iverson was a guy, and, and I hate to almost cliche this too, but if he had kept his head on straight, I think you're talking maybe even top 10 of all time. Iverson had the fucking, he had every bit of talent. He was uh, just an extremely, extremely gifted player. But, you know, look, he, he and this is not an excuse. He, he came from a fucked up childhood. He had a fucked up life. He didn't know anything better. He just didn't know better. And it just created a bad atmosphere. I met Iverson. I, I, I'll quickly tell you, and he was a sweet guy, nice guy. I had a meeting at a hotel in Philadelphia for open table seven years ago. And I walk in and the hostess says, please take a seat at, at one of the bar tables. The manager will be here shortly. And as I'm sitting there, Iverson walks in and sits at one of the bar high tops and makes a phone call. And apparently, I guess he had been living in the hotel or something similar. I went over and, you know, being a total fucking mark like I am, I went over, I, I introduced myself and I said, we miss you. And he said, I love playing basketball. And he was just a really, really nice, unpretentious guy. And I, I think that was something he learned later in life. But I think if his head had been on straight, Jeff, you're, you're talking a top 10 player, possibly. No, and, and you know, uh, just to go back to something that uh, was said in the last episode when we were asking about whether Eddie Gilbert was underrated or overrated. And I said, beginning of the career, underrated. Yep. End of the career, overrated. And somebody in our group posted uh, a picture of Eddie and said, oh, I always thought Eddie was a great guy. And I go, I never said he wasn't a great guy. I met Eddie Gilbert at one of the pay-per-views and, uh, you know, he spent time with that was uh, Jamie Ward that did that. Wasn't it? It was, I'm not going to mention it. Oh, okay. Actually, I'll mention it. That was it Jamie was, Ward. It was not Jamie that made the comment about, about that. He just posted a picture of Eddie Gilbert okay. himself. And I said, I never said that, that Eddie wasn't a good guy. I was just asking based on something that Ian Totten had written. Was he underrated or overrated? And of course that caused a big kerfluffle on the, on the page. Uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, we could say is, good Lord, we could say is uh, Jumbo Saruta under or overrated? You know, you can ask a question and depending on where it goes, you can make comment on it. Anything is a fair question. And, you know, I didn't say uh, that, oh, Eddie Gilbert, by the way, he was a complete fucktard. I hated him. No, it was just about whether he was under or overrated. He was a good guy. I met him the one time with a, a few other people. I think Flaherty was with us. And he was very, very good guy to us, chatty, uh, you know, enjoyed the conversation with him. Oh, no, it wasn't a case of him being a dad. I've had wrestlers that I've met that I kind of thought were big uh, douchebags. Eddie was not one of those. Anyway, let's continue with our NBA comment. All right. So let me ask you, and then we're, we're going to move ahead. Is Tim Duncan worthy of a top 10 player in NBA history? Oh, it, it's so, you know, there have been hundreds of amazing fucking players. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it's no. real. Yeah. So that's a really Tim Duncan is hall of fame worthy. Tim Duncan, in my opinion, is one of the greats of all time. Is he top 10? I don't know. Again, that's so tough, but I'll never say a disparaging word about Tim Duncan. I thought the guy was unbelievable. I thought he was phenomenal. The reason I asked Tim Duncan, number 11. Yeah. So now we are in the top 10. Number 10, we've discussed him, Oscar Robertson. Let me just say this. Oscar Robertson, in my opinion, 
was essentially Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan. You're talking about a guy who for a season averaged a triple-double. And I think he did it like maybe two or three seasons. Correct. He was incredible. Uh, he played at Univ- University of Cincinnati, I believe. Just a uh, He was the guy that was uh, acquired by the Bucks when uh, then at that time Lou Alcindor uh, in 71 was their center, brought him to an NBA title. Uh, that was I, that might have been the only title he ever had, but an unbelievable player for his time. And if you're going to criticize, you know, oh, uh, I didn't like uh, having such and such guy from the 60s. Let's just say Willis Reed. Willis Reed, he shouldn't have been there because he was playing against guys in the 60s. Well, you have to make that comment about Oscar Robertson, too. And I think Oscar Robertson's one of those guys that Oscar Robertson could have played today and been an incredibly effective player and one of the best guys in the league. Yeah, and again, you'll, we'll go back to the rule changes and look, but what he did uh, with the triple doubles, it's, it's history, it's legendary. And uh, he definitely, regardless of, and I, I, I can't say that what you just said, because I, I, I don't know that to be fact, if Oscar Robinson would, would be playing today, exactly what would happen. But you can't discount what he did do. And what he did do was change history, and he really changed the game of basketball as we know it on a lot of different levels. He would absolutely be in the top 10. Number nine, Shaquille O'Neal. I think so. I think if you're looking at a dominant center, this was a guy. I mean, he, the guy was a fucking condominium. I mean, he was, you know, first time I ever saw Shaq, I was sitting like courtside. I just couldn't believe, you know, the mountain of a man this guy was. But Shaq was another guy. A, he had he had skill level, but he also accomplished a lot in his career. And I think that really says something. So, yes, I would say Shaq. Absolutely. I think that a lot of times the the Shaq that was kind of the the comedian and the cut up. I think that was a uh, a facade because I think the guy was uh, a straight up killer. Yeah. Uh, you know, as far as like want, wanting to win. Now, uh, if he played an 82 game season. Did he play like his life depended on it all 82 games? No. You know, I mentioned those guys that maybe didn't do that because he was, you know, he did have a certain amount of uh, of joker to his game. But I think when the time came, he was uh, an absolute uh, uh, stone cold killer on the on the court and uh, definitely belongs there. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that that Shaq wasn't the most physically, strictly physically, physically dominating player in the history of the league. What wow. do you think? Yeah, that's and I like that, too, because, again, you're looking at a guy there. You know, I don't think there had ever been somebody we had seen a lot of tall guys. We had seen your minute bowls and your, you know, guys like this really tall, thin guys. And look, there were some great centers, you know, uh, prior to Shaq. Patrick Ewing, obviously one of those centers. But Shaq was, uh, you know, he was a fucking beast. He was an absolute beast. What was that movie he was in? Was it Blue Chips? Blue, Blue Chips, yeah, with Nick Nolte. Yeah, yeah where he, he was playing where at LSU, right? And uh, uh, I believe, yeah. Well, that's where he went to college. I don't know if that's the uh, the school yeah, that was. But that's what it, right. And and you just look at him, even in uh, even in college, he was just a monster. But you know, there was a uh, there was a period there where a lot of these really big centers had a limited skill set. You know, the the height obviously was was what they were. You know, George Mirasan, who we saw what yeah. in the nineties. No, I George know. Mirasan, right? You know, God, I think he died too. I rest his soul. But you know, George Mirasan was just a big guy. That was about it, and literally was like a big crippled guy most of the time on the court. But uh, you know, Shaq played like a monster. 
And it, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, actually, of Shaq. Number eight, probably the most successful player in terms of team sport in history. Uh, number eight, Bill Russell. Yeah, Bill Russell. There's first off, anybody in Boston's going to tell you absolutely. Bill Russell is a god. Yeah. I like Bill Russell a lot. I know he's gotten some grief over uh, a supposedly sometimes salty attitude and shit like that, but I I have the ultimate respect, and I I would say absolutely. I would say top ten. And a legacy. Yeah, a tremendous yeah. college player too for San Francisco for the uh, San Francisco Dons uh, back in the fifties. But uh, yeah, he just. Uh, and again, you know, the argument will be that, oh, we played in a, a league that didn't have as many teams. And so sure. there weren't as many rounds to go through. But, you know, all the guy did was win. You got to give him that. So uh, next yeah. number. Now here, I, I'm going to say for those out there that are fans of this guy, when I tell you that he's at number seven, there's going to be a certain amount of apoplexy. Number seven, Barry, is he a slotted properly Kobe Bryant? Ooh. Uh... Boy, that's another good. This, this, I'll tell you what, this list has really made me think, too. <sighs> so whatever the knocks on Kobe were, and it was usually selfish, is usually what the, the number one, that it hampered a lot of the success on the team that he was on. Do you remember, uh, Jeff, because I know you're a sports fan, do you remember Kobe's original team that he was traded? Uh, he was uh, drafted by the Charlotte Hornets, was traded That's for right. Vlade Divac. Yes, sir. Look at I, you. I'd say the Lakers won that trade. <laughs> I would say the Lakers won that trade. And uh, yeah, and I remember Vlade was like fucking despondent. And Vlade was like, I think I'm just going to retire. I think he played it one or two years in Charlotte. But they did in, in Kobe. And Kobe, if you remember, I'll go on record as saying this as well. Kobe's first year in the playoffs, he was he was terrible. And he was, if you remember, I don't know if you're going on the record on that. I'm going to go on. Well, I'm going to go on the record as saying what I'm, what I'm, well, okay. Yes. I'm, I'm writing it down. Very Kobe. Kobe was chucking up air balls when he was at the free throw line. And I, this would be 1996 during the playoffs. And I remember uh, turning to my friend at the time. And this is what you're going to want to write down. Kobe Bryant will never amount to anything in the NBA. You're saying the number seven spot is warranted. No, I'm. I, yeah, I'm saying I. I look. I'm telling you, I fucked up when I said that. I'm, I'm clearly. I'm clearly giving everyone that I was 100 percent incorrect. I was 100 percent wrong because Kobe really did. Kobe, I would say Kobe's probably top ten. I, I think maybe a stronger case for top twenty, but that's not to discount anything that Kobe accomplished in his career. So we mentioned Bill Russell earlier. Now the Boston fans will have another chance uh, for a fit. Uh, if Flaherty actually listens to this show, uh, debatable. Yeah. When I tell him that at number six is Larry Bird, what do you think he would say, Bear? I would think, is he, now he he hates Larry Bird? Or? Oh, no, he's like a Celtics guy, you know. So. Yeah, I uh, I would say, yeah, I would say Larry Bird is a top 10 player, absolutely. So, but is number six fair? It's, uh, you know, it's, it, I, the bet is number six fair. It's fair from where I'm sitting currently. If I was to see the list and see like who came in 25 through 40, I, I might have a different opinion, but you know, look, Larry Bird, you know, what, what was the flaw in Larry Bird's game? Um, 
He wasn't the most athletically gifted guy. He wasn't, but what he got out oh, of Oh, absolutely. Yes, what he got exactly. out of Exactly. What he got he out was, of his ability with through hard work yes. and perseverance and and always putting the effort in. Yeah, that was a guy, you know, I mentioned guys that played each game like if they lost they'd go in front of a firing squad. Yeah, that was definitely Larry Bird. Yeah, so, the next was, two Larry Bird too. You got to remember too. Larry Bird was a guy that was he was as salty as they fucking come. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and Larry Bird, he only, you know, a lot of the knocks on him, he only accepted your very best. If there was anything less, he would be in your face. He'd be ready to throw down. And you're right. You look at him and you go, this guy, the guy built like like my father is <laughs> like, you know, is this guy? What a fucking skill set he had, though. And that was all through hard work. I'm, I'm well, a big and, Larry Bird fan, too. And yeah. And think about this. The game that. At the time that Larry Bird was at his zenith, the game and the way that it was played is completely different from what it is now. You know, uh, the, the the guys that will put up a jump shot and immediately look to the ref. I, I was foul. Literally, I'm talking every fucking time down the court. It's just like, you know, sometimes there's, you know, you got to just sit there and say, you know, just fucking move down and play defense. You know, you missed a shot. Don't be looking to the ref to give you a free, you know, free shot from the line. And uh, <clears throat> I'll just leave it at that. There are a right. few, few guys I could mention that are like that. So, Barry, let me just ask you next. I'm going to tell you who the next two guys are. You tell me which should be ahead of the other, okay? The next two guys are Wilt Chamberlain and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Oh. Who should be in the next slot, and sh who should be? So it's five and four. Ooh. Who should be five? Who should be four? First off, let me say Kareem is in my top five favorite players of all time. He's my favorite player, arguably, that never played on the Knicks. So I... For I the am, Power Memorial, how did he never play in New York for the for the Knicks at the Garden? I, I, yeah, he is... Uh, I, I love... I uh, There was a documentary on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar that I watched a couple of years ago, I believe, on HBO. He is such an amazing human being, unless this was a total puff piece I was seeing. But uh, an interesting guy. Yeah, at the, at the very bare minimum, he's a very interesting man. Interesting guy. He's uh, believes in his convictions. He is a uh, yeah, he's a guy I don't think that's really gotten a fair shake because there's a misconception about him on a lot of different levels. But I would probably say. And again, you know, Will Chamberlain, Hunter Point game, I believe, took place in Hershey or Harrisburg in uh, the, the beautiful state of Pennsylvania. Keystone um, State. Keystone State. So, but, you know, could Will Chamberlain, you know, if he was alive and in shape, you know, in, in, in his fourth year of his career or whatever it was, could he have a Hunter Point game now? No, no way. Nobody could have a Hunter Point game now, in my opinion. But I would say... Uh, I'm going to put Kareem above Wilt just based off of not based off of stats. Cause I, again, I think that's tainted, I guess, just based off of who they were. I, I, I would put Kareem above Wilt. I, I think people are going to disagree with that too. So, well, as a matter of fact, the list have, has Wilt at five and Kareem at four. Oh, okay. But, that guy agree. That's good. But prime of their career. Do you think Shaq could have contained Wilt or Wilt could have contained Shaq. I think Shaq could have contained any human being he wanted to, including Wilt. Again, Wilt, big guy. Wilt, very strong guy. Wilt, what, fucked over like 10,000 women, allegedly? Props. Uh, 
props. <laughs> right. Well, I'm still trying to get in double digits at 57, Jeff. This guy had fucking, he's in five digits. So, yeah, I think Shaq could have. I'm not sure if Wilt could have contained Shaq, but we don't know. You know, that's conjecture on that. I don't know. Number three, Barry. Oh, if he reads the article, I'm sure he will complain to somebody. And this is going to be a controversial selection based on who number two is. Uh Oh, it's your boy, Bron Bron at number three. Oh, Bron Bron, Bron Bron. It makes the exit in the first round with the Lakers. LeBron is a great player. Absolutely. He's and a you great know what? player. It, it sometimes is lost because of douchey behavior and, 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 you know, things that he says and things that he does, you know, it's, I've always felt LeBron's team, the people that he's got around him should just be like LeBron, just be quiet. Don't say shit. Don't anger a lot of people, you know, just, just play basketball for the good of basketball. I would say I, 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 I wouldn't put him higher than three. No. I absolutely so, wouldn't. So here, here's what I'll say. You number two, a guy is as great as the other players in the NBA at the time. You know what sure, I mean? Sure. So, right. Like, yeah. So, I, no, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah. He's, he he's, is, you're right. He's a great player. Yeah. He is doing things at his age that I don't know if anybody's done in the NBA because, you know, other guys, when they hit 35, right. you, you start seeing a noticeable decline. Absolutely. And has he declined from what he was at 25? Yeah, probably. But I mean, is it like falling off a cliff like some guys do? No, I, I wouldn't say that. He's still absolutely elite. But there are those that will say that he is no longer the best guy on the Lakers now, that Anthony Davis is the is the number one guy on the Lakers. And maybe part of where they're having problems is LeBron sort of has trouble letting go of that number one slot. Uh, and turning it over to Anthony Davis. I'm just saying that's what I've read. Some people say, not necessarily my own opinions, so don't get yourself all uh, tied up in a knot. So here's the controversial point, Barry. <laughs> okay. Number two, because let's be honest, we kind of all know who number one is at this point. Okay, yes, we do. Number two player in the history of the National Basketball Association, per this article, Irvin Magic Johnson. What do you think? Definitely top 10, possibly top five. I'm assuming a case could be made. I mean, he he was great. Let's be honest. Let's take it all out. When the day that he announced his retirement, and I'm talking about when he came forth and said that he had contracted AIDS or it was HIV positive and retired, I I had tears in my eyes because that was a, that was a big deal. That was a really big deal. and, And that I think, that changed basketball at that stage in a lot of ways. But is he the second greatest player ever in the NBA, Magic Johnson? I don't know. Top 10, 100%, possibly top five. I'm not sure about number two, though, Jeff. I don't know about that one. Well, and one of the things that's pointed out is that, uh, you know, they talked about the different positions that he could play. Yes. He was a guy that successfully too. Yeah. yeah. Like literally five positions. He point, right. you know, the, the, the shooting good, guard yeah. at both forward spots and he played center in the NBA finals, yeah. you know, when, when Kareem was out, uh, you know, but I, I think you're correct. I don't know that he's the second greatest player of all time. You know, uh, I, he was, I, I'm unfortunately old enough to remember the, the bird magic, uh, NCAA, game you know how the, lucky the, are you right exactly yeah, you know, that's yeah. just crazy so of course number one is is uh yes the <laughs> uh, 
it is not Bernard King. Yo, <laughs> it is darn. Michael Jeffrey Jordan. So, uh, not John uh, you know, Stark. Darn. Yeah. It's yeah, really. Uh, it's funny because I used to uh, tease with my guy David Steele, who uh, at least for a time, I don't know if it still exists. I was a big LeBron guy, and we'd always go, "Oh, uh, Jordan is so much better than LeBron," and uh, you know, "Oh, LeBron is better than Jordan." There's like that little uh, verbal war that you can have with people that you know that are big in the in the NBA and stuff like that. But uh, I just, from a uh, God, I, I, just a sheer dominance uh you know a, a guy that could be surrounded with uh you know th- there are guys that are so great and, and i'm not saying that that jordan's bulls had lesser talent you know because of course you had pippen horace grant uh you know and and other guys but you know the whole team was was basically you know phil jackson i just think gets way too much credit for that that was all fucking jordan and he was so it, fucking it dominant. was all jordan it was all so if you look at it like you know you look at a lot of those teams too and you had pippen and pippen was a great player horace grant was a very good player i wouldn't put horace grant in any sort of elite uh but you had your luke longley's bill you know. cartwright Bill Cartwright, who actually I liked Bill Cartwright. You had, I mean, you know. Let's you not had... forget who the guard was on those teams from the University of Notre Dame, my friend, my boy, Johnny Pax. John Paxson, thank you very yeah. kindly. Okay, John I Paxson, did. yeah, Tony Kukoc. Yep. Yeah, so, you know, but you had guys that were good players, but they weren't elite players. And, yes, you can give Phil Jackson credit, but you're right. It, 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 you know, you played with Jordan. Jordan was your guy. Jordan was the guy that was policing that locker room. And, you know, Jordan, Jordan had this, uh, this amazing rep for years where everybody thought he was this wonderful human being. And he wasn't at all. He was not a good guy, but as a basketball player, he was a fucking, he was a murderer. He was a guy. Like I would, mentioned, he was a stone cold killer. Just that's like it. That's a hundred percent. Exactly what he was. He was a stone cold killer. He didn't give a shit. And didn't give a fuck. He would go out there and, and that's what it takes to win. And I think honestly, that's where the edge over LeBron, in my opinion, LeBron's got amazing skills. LeBron knows how to win, especially in the second half of a game. But fucking Jordan was, I mean, you know, that that's at a different level. That is a different level. And he, some of the shit he did back then, it's just incredible. Jordan's a guy though, in my opinion, Jordan could come on the court today based off of what his skill set was 30 years ago, could come on the court today and probably take a team to the title. Barry, as we start the old go home, rounding the turn, heading for home, a fun episode, talked a little NBA. NBA, we, we rarely talk NBA, Barry. We almost never, and we, we should say we do occasionally. You and I always talk NBA, and you certainly text me about, you know, the things that are going on within uh, the NBA. But yeah, this is... Uh, it's an interesting list, so I'm I'm excited about to, to discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that and we talked to CWF history. We had, oh the Tennessee stud join us. Talk a little WFIA. Make fun of how short Tom Burke is. That kind of stuff. It's been a lot of fun. So on behalf of my co-host Barry Rose, I am Jeff. They call me the Booker Bowdrin. I will remind you that our we are a member of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. By God, I didn't forget that our producer is the sweet man Luke Kippelman. We will see you next week, folks. Take us over, Luke.